Hello, everyone, and welcome to Veterans Voices with Joe and Steve-O. Today, we interview Neil Smith. He is the drummer from the Alice Cooper Band. He's a member. He's a, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's done a ton of great stuff, and he's going to tell us his story. Uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is really cool. So, so um, this was a lot of fun. This was one of the funnest interviews that we've done. You're going to learn a lot about um, about that, that early years and the current years of the Alice Cooper Band and what they've all been doing. But, but also, um, Neil talks about a lot of other things. You know, his father was a veteran in World War II, uh, so he comes from a big uh, military family. And, um, and, you know, so there's a real connection, which is why I think he wanted to talk with us. Um, I mean, um, you know, because we have an audience that he wants to reach and wants to pay tribute to. So, um, so I think there's a lot of cool stuff here. I had a great time. I, I, I think Joe did too. Uh, we, we touch on a little bit of transition too, because uh, there is a transition from active duty military to going on to whatever you're going to do later in life. And in Neil's case, he had a transition from being a rock star to uh, going on to what he was gonna do next in life, which ended up being real estate for a while. So there's some interesting parts of this interview that we think you'll really enjoy. Um, so, yeah. so we think it's gonna be a lot of fun. It's really cool. Make sure that you, um, uh, you know, give us some love with the uh, follow and the share and the likes and on the platforms. And, uh, and, and definitely go out there and give us input. Let us know what you like and what you'd like to see more of. All right, so this is episode eight of uh, Veterans Voices with Joe and Steve-O. Today we have an exciting interview with uh, Neil Smith. He is joining us from uh, Arizona and has has called in. Yeah, so th so this is really exciting, especially for me, since I, you know, grew up, I was a teenager in the 70s, so, you know, the stuff that you guys were doing, Neil, was, like, forefront in my, um, in what little memory I have left from those days, but but uh, first, I want to kind of want to introduce you a little bit. So, so, so Neil Smith is a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame drummer from, uh, for his work in the Alice Cooper Band. Um, he is an artist, a writer, actor, musician, and a really highly successful uh, real estate investor and, um, and, uh, and real estate agent. So, so that's something that we're going to want to uh, ask you about today, too. But um, so I'm just going to kind of get right into it. Um, so obviously we've got to start somewhere. So it, you know I'm excited to ask you about those early days. Um, you know, especially with um, you know obviously Alice Cooper was a you know big big thing that happened in your life, um, um, which you know is which is really a phenomenon. You know, it's it's kind of interesting how that that happened because I think in your case, like if if you guys hadn't um, gone, uh, you know. If you guys hadn't made it out to uh, LA, you wouldn't have met Chef Gordon. You wouldn't have hooked up with Frank Zappa. And um, so, so can you tell us a little bit, talk a little bit about those early days of, of what that was like back in the sixties? Well, first of all, you you said you listened to the original band in the seventies. Well, I did in the seventies because I'm I'm fifty eight. And you kind of and you kind of turned out okay. Huh? <laughs> yeah, but if it had been a couple of years earlier, I might not have. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Um, uh, yeah, you know, we, we all grew up in the early 60s here in, uh, in Arizona, Glenn Buxton and myself. We didn't know each other in the Midwest in Akron, Ohio, but after, you know, he, he moved here. Uh, in the early 60s, I moved here in 1963. <clears throat> I graduated from Camelback High School. Um, everybody else in the band went to Cortez High School. And uh, we, we hooked up in junior college at Glendale Community College. Um, the year 1966 to uh, 
67. We became friends. I was, uh, I was playing drums in another band at the time called the Holy Grail. Uh, but I knew that the, the Spiders and the Nas, <clears throat> they, they changed the name to the Nas, uh, during that time period, you know, w was the biggest rock band in, uh, in Phoenix. And, uh, and Glenn and I, because we were both from Akron, Ohio, we took classes together. We all took art classes. I had classes with Dennis Dunaway and Vincent Fernier, who became Alice. And uh, um, also John Spear, their drummer uh, from uh, the, the Spiders and the Nas also went to Glendale Community College. Uh, so in, in 1967, we all left uh, Arizona for California, the band I was in the Holy Grail went to, to San Francisco and eventually broke up and um, uh, the, the Nas who went to, uh, that became Alice Cooper, uh, went to Los Angeles. And uh, so when I came back uh, to San Francisco, the summer of, summer of love, 1967, I had met up with my friends, <clears throat> Glenn and, 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 and Dennis and Vince and, uh, and Mike Bruce, and we uh, we got together and hung out as friends, uh, traveled a little bit with them, uh, and uh, way things worked out, I, I actually because I was looking for a band to play in, and I and I pretty much exhausted uh, Arizona. Uh, I, I went back to California with them and, and moved in with them in, in um, Santa Monica. And uh, while I was living there in the fall of 67, John Spear, their drummer, uh, uh, I guess had a falling out the band and he came back to Arizona. I happened to be in their house. I had my drums there and they asked me if I wanted to stay and join them and, uh, and join the NAS. And that was uh, 67 and I said yes. I, I mean, it, it came as a shock to me because I didn't know there were any there was any friction in the band and everybody was cool. And as far as I ever saw, I still don't know the real reasons that that John, uh, who was also a friend of mine, uh, left and came back to, to Phoenix. But I uh, <clears throat> uh, I stayed happily, and we were the house band at the Cheetah Club, which is a, a, a chain of uh, big rock discos back in the uh, back in the sixties. I think they were in Philadelphia, New York, uh, California. Um, maybe even Miami, I'm not sure, but we were a house band. As we played with a lot of acts from uh, Pink Floyd to um, the Big Brother, the Holding Company with Janis Joplin and, and uh, Chambers Brothers, lots of uh, lots of bands at the time. But um, some of the uh, holiday season of 1967, we all came back to uh, to Phoenix, Arizona, and um, because we did okay there. But you didn't get paid as much. We could make a lot more money in Arizona because we were a pretty well-known band here. And uh, we get 50 bucks a night, 100 bucks a night in California. We get, you know, five or $600 a night uh, here in Arizona. And that was a huge difference in the, in the 60s. So, so we came back and <coughs> filled up our bank accounts. And then uh, we, we moved back uh, spring of uh, 1968 back to Topanga Canyon in California. And uh, we found out there was a band called The Nance in Philadelphia with Todd Rundgren. Right. And they had just, just signed a record deal. So we had to change our name and long story uh, short. Um, and uh, Katie did come from a Ouija board the first time uh, that we ever saw the name Alice Cooper because uh, I was there that night. And um, the, uh, there were a lot of names floating around that we had to choose from. 
But for some reason, uh, while we were in California, we all all liked the name Alice Cooper, and uh, we played our first show on the uh, I think it was March 16th, 1968, uh, as Alice Cooper at the uh, Earl Warren Fairgrounds in Santa Barbara, California, and that's when it all started. So, so, so mention. Um, um, so everything I've read about Frank Zappa, I mean, Frank Zappa was kind of, I mean, he actually fit his persona and the things he was doing really fit you guys. Um, you know, like, it's funny that I had uh, read Pamela DeBear's um, book some years ago and um, about her groupie thing. And it was funny that um, Frank Zappa recognized, like, some talent there. and He wanted to use that energy. So he created the GTOs. And I think that, that the GTOs, like, he was putting them on stage with you guys, wasn't he? Well, we were friends with um, Miss Christine and uh, Miss Pamela from the GTOs. And it was through Miss, it was through them that we did the audition for Frank. And uh, so we, we, we did the, um, the historic, uh, the, 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 the audition that, that was seven o'clock in the evening, but we thought it was seven o'clock in the morning. We all set up at his house and, in the morning and, uh, and auditioned for him in Laurel Canyon. And uh, he, he goes, what the hell are you guys doing? And we said, well, we were told to be here at 7 o'clock. And he goes, yeah, 7 o'clock tonight, not this morning. So he said, oh, well, I'm up. I've had my first cup of coffee. Go ahead and play. We got into a couple of songs, and he said, I'll sign you. So uh, that was how the record deal came together. And believe me, we had tried every, uh, uh, almost every single company in California auditioning or sending demos to the to the companies and with no luck. So so we uh, we finally connected with Frank and that's that's how that deal came together. Of course, Frank wanted us to sign with Herbie Cohen, his manager. But the, the what I especially knew about uh, the music industry, so all the biggest bands in the world, from uh, the biggest acts from Bob Dylan to the Rolling Stones to the Beatles, had a management company or a manager that managed them exclusively. Mm. And I did not want to be second fiddle to Frank Zappa. I don't think anybody else in the band did either. So we went out searching for our own manager to represent us, which in the long run was probably the, the most lucky and brilliant thing that we ever did. That's where we met uh, Joe Greenberg and Chef Gordon, who were partners at the time and had a, uh, a management company called Live Enterprises. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, one thing that's really interesting, you touched on it um, a minute ago, uh, and, and I always go back to this whenever I, um, you know, I interview, I've, I've interviewed a few guys from, from that era, and, and, and they all say the same thing. So, and that is that it was really prolific, the, the, the energy that was going on in the music industry, especially in rock and roll, and, and, um, and you could even say probably country, um, you know, because there was a lot going on there um, with Graham Parsons and 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 uh, the Burrito Brothers and stuff like that. But the but I remember talking a few months ago to Dave Getz from Big Brother, and and he was talking about the same thing that um, the thing that they had in their favor was up in San Francisco. They had Bill Graham, and Bill Graham had had his you know his his um, his theater, and he could really you know do a lot for those acts. That were coming up, but everybody was like coalesced. Everybody was together. Like you were in Topanga Canyon, which was a hotbed for for the music uh, for aspiring musicians at that time who became something. Um, was what was the energy like back then? Well, I still think it's one of the most vibrant 
times in the music business uh, in, in the United States was the 60s into the 70s. I, you have to remember, there was no internet. There was uh, nothing on a massive scale of communication like there is now. All you had was records, uh, written publicity in the fan magazines and occasional um, uh, television shows, and of course, live concerts. That was it. There was, there was nothing else on a daily basis bombarding people. So if something was big, it had to be big and spread by word of mouth and, and uh, by the written press. And I think that was also one of the things that made it, made it great. And, and that's why albums were so important, because when you got an album, you ripped it open, and boom, the image of your favorite band was right there. And we tried to exploit that with all of our album covers. Yeah. Um, whereas today, you know, there was the, the, the art of album covers no longer exists. And I think that's one of the biggest losses from the, you know, from the 60s and 70s, how important album covers were for, for everybody, from the Beatles to the Stones to, to us, to, uh, to Led Zeppelin, to uh, Pink Floyd. I mean, really extravagant album covers were a big deal. That was part of the vibrance, I think, of it. And you notice you mentioned Bill Graham because Bill Graham and Chef Gordon were not the best of friends. And, uh, and, and for that reason, we never ever, uh, as a band, Alice Cooper, we were never successful in the uh in the san francisco bay area so 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 again great great opportunity to ask you about um so album covers so sitting behind me you can't see it but um but uh, joe and i were talking about it before we give you a call and i have a um, billion dollar babies billion dollar bill that i have framed up on my in my music room and um and and you know and i sent joe um those photos you sent me from the uh, Muscle of Love album, which were which which were on the interior of the album in the in the in the in the spread, and Joe was kind of uh, laughing because you know, you know Joe is I think I mentioned to you Joe's retired naval officer. So Joe, do you have any questions about what was going on there? Well, I I just want to say I do love the photos that were in the Muscle of Love album with you guys dressed as sailors, like all drunk in the street, and I I hope it, uh, we can we can put some of those up when we. Uh, when we post this podcast so that people listening can see those photos. That would be great. You know, Glenn's father was in the, uh, Glenn Buckstar, the guitar player, was in the, uh, in the Navy, and my father, Walter Smith, was, uh, was in the Navy also. So uh, that was sort of the, 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 the spirit of uh, that direction in the, on the Muscle of Love album. <clears throat> and, of course, the, uh, the cover of it, that's actually Pacific Ioneer. That was the company that designed our album covers. Uh, you know, all the, 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 from schools out all the way up through Muscle of Love. And uh, uh, they even uh, helped on the, uh, after the Hall of Fame, the, uh, the box set that was out. So they've been part of, uh, you know, of our creative uh, process for a long time. But that was actually the, the Muscle of Love, the uh, Institute of Nude Wrestling <laughs> on, the, on the inside uh, the sleeve. That was actually their offices. In, um, in, uh, in Hollywood that they painted up and, and did like that. So, and, and then we, you know, got the sailor suits and um, of course uh, we were busted and put in the brig and the, the, you know, I, I, I've never seen so many potatoes in my entire life. <laughs> we were peeling uh, in, the, in, in, the, uh, in the inside uh -huh. of, the, of the publicity for the outcome. And Teenage Lament, which is the song, the last single that the, the band had was a song that I had written. And uh, that was where we're all in the in the, uh, in the kitchen peeling thousands of potatoes. That was the uh, that was the album cover for that, which never made any sense, but I thought it was really cool. Anyway.
Well, but well, actually, that makes perfect sense because if you watch any of the old World War II movies, if you ended up getting in trouble, like you know whatever you were doing when you were on uh, R and R, uh, you ended up down in the galley peeling tomato or potatoes. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I know why we were there, but I'm just saying in relationship to the songs you made, oh. but uh, but no, no, I, I know that was a great concept, and since we were you know so into theatrics and uh, you know. In, in Southern California, big, uh, big military and naval area of the country, it seemed like to be the uh, the, the, the perfect match. And uh, I still love the photographs where all the sailor suits and all that too. That's hilarious. So Neil, I wanted I wanted to ask you, what was it like, you know, in that that late '60s, early '70s time frame? You had Vietnam hanging over your head in that in that whole music scene. What what was that like? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, um, uh, you know, for one reason or another, I had actually, uh, that time when we came back early spring of uh, 1968, before we moved back to Topanga Canyon, we were out in the desert shooting jackrabbits, and uh, there was a, an accident. Alice accidentally shot me in the foot, and um, I still have the 22 sling in my left ankle bone and the interior ankle bone. And, and that's what kept me out of the service. But believe me, we were we were very aware of it, um, and uh, you know we weren't for the war, we weren't against it. We were, you know, we're always for uh, whatever the United States was was involved with, or supportive of it. Um, it we, we we were concentrating on our music and what we wanted to do. We all left home. None of us ever went back, and uh, it was a survival survival thing. I mean, we were literally starving. We were living over there. We had no money, just paying the rent, and we would have like minimum amount of food uh, to eat until we got the deal with Frank Zappa and we got some front money. But um, but one of the interesting things, when you think about Vietnam, <clears throat> you think about Creedence Clearwater, The Stones, Jimi Hendrix, those were a lot of the very popular uh, bands that were listened to over there. And um, I when I got, when I had my website up and I got my first emails in the late 90s, I started getting emails from <clears throat> from fans literally all over the world. And it never dawned on me, but in uh, early 1971, when, when uh, the Love It to Death album was released, I got a very moving uh, letter from a, a soldier that was in Vietnam who was also a huge fan. And he said that, the reason he made it through Vietnam is because of the song Black Juju wow. on the Love of the Death album. And he said, he said every day, at the end of the day, he was, he, he, there was a bombed out jeep that he went into. And I, I guess he must have had some sort of a, a recorder or some sort of a, uh, you know, a, a player to play the, play the music. <clears throat> it may have even been an old 8-track. But he said he played it every day and he said that's what got me through Vietnam safely yeah. and back home. And I, I like, I'm reading that and I'm going, I'm getting choked up and I'm going, I, I just never believed that our music saturated into Vietnam and to the point that, uh, you know, how it inspired, helped, helped um, you know, even one, even one military soldier survive. And I just like, it, it really struck me for the very first time, the depth that our music went into people, not only in the United States, who were just crazy fans, but also other parts of the world. 
how deep our, our, our music went to different places on the planet. And, and believe me, it was a, a humbling experience when I when I got that email from him. And I, I think somewhere in my archives, I still have it to this day. But it's one of the you know one of the, the nearest and dearest messages I ever got from a fan in my life. You know, so so as a fan, um, which 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 I was, and, and mostly because my stepbrother, I had a stepbrother named Steve, so it was Big Steve and Little Steve, and it was kind of bizarre, but uh, which probably explains a lot of what happened to me as I, as I became an adult. So, um, but, but, you know, I was really, by, by, by about 75, 76, I was really getting into kind of the whole glam rock scene. I really loved Bowie. I loved what you, you know, the theatrics and the vaudevillian, personality of what you guys were doing. Um, but I was also really getting in heavy to Black Sabbath and Blue Oyster Cult and, and a lot of bands that had kind of that dark edge to them. And, and I think the thing that really helped me to, to not slip off the edge was, was that you, the, the stuff that Alice Cooper Band was doing was really, um, it was so tongue in cheek and everything that you guys were doing that it was difficult to take it seriously. Like, whereas like Black Sabbath, it was easy to fall down that rabbit hole. Um, especially if, you know, you were experimenting with, with, you know, any substances and, in those um, days. I am from um, the Detroit area and uh, I had the opportunity to, for $5, I got to, I got to go to the Flint IMA auditorium and see Billion Dollar Babies uh, perform right after you guys put out Battle Axe. And that okay. was an one of the few battle act shows. Well, we were look at we were really excited. We were teenagers. We were really excited um, that you guys were doing that. Like we couldn't wait. Like we weren't even like it wasn't like hey you know um, you know I didn't even try to go see Alice Cooper. I was I wanted to see Billion Dollar Babies, and it was really a good show. I mean, it was pretty exciting. Um, so, so can you kind of touch on that a little bit? So I've read some things about why it didn't work out, but, um, but you probably have a lot of material that was never released from those days. Well, first of all, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the album Battle Axe uh, was the, the next uh, Alice Cooper album. Uh, those were the songs, whether it would have gone that direction once Bob Ezra and once Alice does his lyric things, I, I don't know, but those were, that was the music that was being uh, being written. And why we were writing music? Because the band didn't go separate ways. We took a year off, everybody agreed to it, and we were gonna get together to do our next um, album, which would have been the eighth uh, Alice Cooper album in Not Counting the Greatest Hits. But Alice found success with the Welcome to My Nightmare album, and he, and he reneged on his deal to get back together with the band. And believe me, it was a big deal. Because nobody, uh, whatever stories you ever hear are all wrong. That's what happened. And uh, we're making tons of money. And who the hell in their right mind would walk away from that? The answer is nobody. So um, when you ever hear any other story other than Michael Bruce wanted to do a solo album after we got home from uh, 1974, after, the, after we played in South America and Brazil, Michael wanted to take a year off to do, uh, he was the main songwriter in the band. He had tons of songs and he wanted to do them. Uh, and <clears throat> like Peter Frampton, Peter Frampton, you know, he was in Humble Pie and he, he, he went out and did his own, his own music and became a hit. And so we took the year off. Michael did his, Alice did Nightmare, I did my album, Platinum God. The only reason I did Platinum God was because um, 
I did. I wrote, I wrote music and I recorded music. And I got Jack Douglas, who uh, had mm -hmm. just uh, recorded The Muscle of Love with us, and he produced it for me. And uh, Dennis helped me immensely in that project as well. And, uh, and a guitar player out of Rochester, New York, Mike Marconi, who I bet was totally blown away by. So after Planet God was out, we were supposed to get back together. Michael Bruce was at my house in Greenwich, and, and Dennis, we started writing songs. Because Warner Brothers wanted another album. They had wanted another um, Alice's Welcome to My Nightmare was on, on Atlantic, <clears throat> a loophole that was in our original contract, but Alice took advantage of that. And uh, that was supposed to be for the band yeah. to do a, a, a movie um, soundtrack like the Beatles did Hard Day's Night uh, off of Capitol Records. But at any rate, we, we were, uh, Michael and I were talking to Warner Brothers and they, they wanted an album. We put an album together. And by that time, Alice was working on her second solo album. So that took care of that. So we had an album that we were writing. I said, okay. We decided Alice take the name of the band, and he changed his name legally to Alice Cooper, and we put a band together called Billion Dollar Babies. And uh, we got a deal with Polydor Records. They released the album. I thought it was a great album, great songs, and the show was, was amazing. We spent tons of money on a bigger production than we'd ever done before. And if you saw the show, then yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I still think it would make an awesome video game. The whole, the whole idea about battle axe, but um, uh, that that that's where that came from. And, and unfortunately, um, after we had done that brief uh, Midwest tour uh, in '76 or '77, uh, there were some major uh, management problems, and the, and the band disbanded. We never did a second album. So that's what happened. Um, I mean, we all left on good terms after we, you know, agreed agreed to everything, and then, um, uh, but, but, it, but we all just didn't. I mean, nobody in that band wanted to, to split up, and, um, but, you know, once again, once you once everybody in the band does solo albums, you never. That's kind of a. It's kind of like Russian roulette. You never know. Somebody might hit a, hit a, uh, have a hit album, and then. Do they want to go back to the band or keep going? And that's right. exactly what happened. And, and and I've always been supportive of everything anybody's ever done in the band. And uh, I mean, Alice, unfor Alice had a great uh, run of, of hit albums in the uh, in the late '70s, mm -hmm. uh, early '80s. He had some problems. That, uh, if you see the movie Super Duper by Alice Cooper, uh, you, you, you know he he ran and you know, he got tangled up in all the the, the devils of rock and roll, and that's that's bad. It happens occasionally, but thank God he came out of it in the uh, mid-80s. Mid Dennis and I got together with him and did a bunch of pre-production on the um, uh, the Constrictor album, <clears throat> uh, where he did with Kane Roberts. And uh, so we, our friendship was back together again after being apart for 10 years, and we've been tight ever since. So, so, so Joe, so you, you were going to ask about that. So that's a great... Yeah, so, I wanted to I wanted to jump in there. I have a question about like that transition part of uh part of your career from rock star to well to to what you did after, right? Because when we talk to veterans, uh there's a there is a big transition from the military to what is your next life going to be? Cuz it you know, it doesn't it doesn't last forever in in the military and uh I mean, unless you're the Rolling Stones in a rock band, right? So the um so that transition for you 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 i was uh so for me 
I was investing in real estate the entire time I was in the military. And uh, I realized that like a real, real estate plays were like, like a great way to hold a lot of your, your wealth, you know, throughout uh, for decades to come. So I know you uh, are a real estate investor as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that transition for you and how you went from rock star to a uh, real estate investor? Well, I wasn't really a real estate investor. I, I had a license to sell uh, residential real estate in the state of Connecticut. And, and, um, but uh, after school's out, when we started getting some, some very nice checks in, in the early 70s, uh, my, uh, I mean, everybody has to do what they think is best. Um, I had plenty of money that I, I would save half of it and, you know, spend the other half. But I always would. I would always save a lot of money. And uh, at one point, uh, I I bought a home actually here in Arizona um, for an investment, uh, and my mother lived in it. And uh, within two years, um, I had uh, I had somebody. Um, actually, it was next to a church. <clears throat> the church wanted to buy it, and I. I sold it two years later and I tripled my investment, 300% uh, earnings on my money. So yes, uh, I, I did, uh, I, did I, I was self-invested in real estate and learned about it that way. Um, and I had, had other uh, real estate investments through the years that I made personally, some I would do great on and some just barely, you know, get out with the money that I, that I uh, invested in it. But um, it was, for that reason, in the mid-80s, my interest in real estate, I always had a business uh, sense of my, uh, you know, just you know, who I am. And I, I had the opportunity to uh, get a real estate license because a, uh, a girl that I was dating, her mother owned a, um, a real estate company in Westport, Connecticut. And uh, I, 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 took, uh, I took the class purely for education to learn a little more about real estate, about investing and that sort of thing and on my own. And when I, I took the course, passed all the tests and I all of a sudden had a real estate license and she told me that she had uh, an opening in one of her, uh, she had two offices, one in Wilton, Connecticut, one in Westport, Connecticut. She said she had an opening in her office and if I wanted to come in there and, you know, spend some time and see if I get some clients and sell some houses that, you know, I was certainly uh, welcome to do that. I did that, and that started a, what, what ended up being a, a 35-year career for myself. So um, I, uh, <clears throat> I didn't. Uh, that wasn't what I was planning on doing, but uh, but it worked out great. It was a, a great way to, uh, uh, to, to you know to, to to make money in Fairfield County, Connecticut, uh, uh, and 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 learn uh, firsthand about investing and all the ins and outs of, uh, of residential real estate. So um, it, it, it's always a, a good way to, to hedge, uh, you know, hedge a, a, any kind of a, um, upturn and downturn in the economy. You know, real estate's uh, always historically shown to be a lot better than the stock market. But um, so any anything is, uh, you know, if you're going to be paying rent and, and, the, and the interest rates are still Unbelievably low. I mean, you have to remember that back in the 80s, there were interest rates that were double digits up in the 14, 15, 16, 17 percent range. And in the 1980s, it was just insane. 
and now they're you know two, three, four percent. I mean, in, in my opinion, <laughs> that's that's almost like not even having a mortgage. So it's a great great time to to do that. But you have to do a lot of research, know your area. And that was what I had done by getting a real estate license in you know in, in the area that I lived in, in the state I lived in. Um, yeah, I I agree with that one hundred percent. It's a great way to invest. They're, they're, you know, the you can generally find uh, people that will like to rent. If you buy nice stuff, people will want to rent it. You can you can make passive income off of it. And the other thing, uh, doing it when you're you know a younger man and you haven't figured out exactly what you want to do with your money and your life yet, it's a little bit of a good way to protect your money from yourself because you put a couple hundred thousand dollars into a property and you can't you can't get to it right away. You can't go take it out of the bank. You have to sell the house. Part to of get it, that's part of it too. I mean, it's like putting it in the money market account. You know, someplace where you where you you have to hold, you have to tie it up for twelve months or six months. Because yes, that is a great point. <clears throat> it takes it out of you know, it, it's not easily easily accessible, and you don't want that. If you're trying to build wealth, you don't want to be able to you know you you say, oh man, that car is great, and boom, you spend it all on a car all of a sudden, and you know you drive it off the lot and lose ten thousand dollars. So. I mean, it's just it's just uh, smart financing to to you know if you can do it uh, if you can put some money aside that you uh, you can live on uh, even if you have to change uh, your lifestyle a little bit to save it's as time goes on it's one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. So so Joe touched on a, a transition, but we know. We know after listening to a lot of your music, and which is a lot of post early day music, a lot of modern stuff. Like I was, I didn't realize that you were that you were playing drums for Wendy O. Williams and the Plasmatics back in the eighties. That was like I was like, wow, that is so kind of, you know. Yeah, well, that was, <laughs> it was incredible. That was a, uh, they they totally blew me away. I saw them, uh, <clears throat> I saw them in the early eighties. And uh, in um, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and they blew me away. At that time, right before that, Dennis Dunaway and myself had a band called Flying Tigers. We played all the way all around New England for, for several years. And one of the clubs that we played at in New Haven, I found out there was this band from uh, from New York playing there called the Plasmatics. And I went up there. I saw them. I was totally blown away by them. I mean, the Mohawks, the Chainsaw, the music. I mean, they. They owned that stage, and they were really reminiscent of when we were making our earliest um, attempts to really understand what we were all about and being the, the owners of our own destiny with the early Alice Cooper stuff around Love of the Death. And then when we went into a club and we went into play, that became us. And they did the same thing. I mean, that just had such a plasmatic vibe. I loved them, and I, and I first of all, I told them, I said, you, I said, you guys are amazing. I have not seen it such an original act in years. It was so different. And um, and they, because I, I went, I knew the club very well. I went on stage and they, I went backstage and met them, and they, they knew, they knew me, and, and I, I knew everybody in the club. But uh, but I was amazed because I asked them. I said, you know, I know what inspired us, and what what bands inspired us from the British invasion in the '60s. I said, what the hell ever. What inspiration did you guys have? And they said they all looked at me almost like all, all five of them together. And Richie Stott's a guitar player, and Wendy and everybody else, Wes in the band, they said, 
Alice Cooper Pretties for You. Oh, yeah. And, I, and they said, that's our Sergeant Pepper album. And I said, no wonder you guys are so incredibly fucked up. <laughs> and so I, said, I, I said, I love you guys. I said, if you ever need anything that I can help you with, let me know. And like a year or so later, their drummer quit. They were recording their second album, Beyond the Valley of 1984, and they asked me to play. And I, man, I, I said, I would, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Uh, they paid me, but I told them I'd do it for free. But, um, and the reason, uh, I was going through a bad divorce at the time, and I didn't want any publicity. And uh, I, uh, so when you see the, the, the album, Beyond the Valley 1984, the Plasmatic second album, it says drums or percussion, I don't know which one, it's just Neil Smith, and it's in small letters. They said, please keep it down. And, <laughs> and that was fine. That came out, and then, like, next week, Time Magazine, had a big article about the plasmatics and said drummer Neil Smith and I go, oh my God! So they were cool on the on the uh, on the uh, on the album, but then the publicity they they had had me in there. I never played any live shows with them, but uh, but it was a gas that was one of the coolest things I ever did. And I, to this day, I still love that band. And unfortunately, um, Stores, Connecticut, which I'm very familiar with, uh, is where Wendy and, and uh, Rod Swenson, their manager, uh, lived. And, you know, what was it, it was 15 years ago, it has been a long time, and she committed suicide there on the property, and it was just such a tragic loss. She was such, such an amazing talent, and I talk about, you know, knocking down uh, glass ceilings and everything. I mean, she's the, the first heavy metal queen that there was that was doing what she's doing, and I, I would still, um, if the Stooges can be in the Rock Roll Hall of Fame, the Plasmatics could definitely be in the Hall of Fame, and I, I would I'd be willing to stand behind that someday. Hey, um, so this wasn't something I wrote down to ask, but it just popped in my head, because she did a lot of stuff, like the Plasmatics were like really one of the bands that jumped out of CBGB, and, and um, Lester Bangs, I used to read Lester Bangs uh, in Cream Magazine when I was a teenager, and and um, did did you did you have any time to did you ever spend any time like being interviewed by him or um, I've read a lot about him but reading his stuff he really touched me about because he was a, a Detroit and really in a New York kind of personality and and he, he, his whole attitude fit in with like Wendy O Williams and with you guys and and a lot of others. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I know Lester. I mean, he used to hang around with us an awful lot. We knew him uh, pretty well, but I never. I wasn't familiar with anything that he wrote about the Plasmatics. Was he for? Did he like them or didn't he? Like them? Yeah. So he. So you know. So he was very anti, uh, pretty much establishment. So he hated, I think, Led Zeppelin, and he hated, you know, he hated probably the Stones, but he loved Lou Reed, and he loved Alice Cooper, and he loved Kiss, and he loved. Blondie and the Plasmatics and bands like that because I think because there was an antisocial, um, anti-establishment bent to them, um, and he was not a great writer, but he 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 was a truthful writer and and I um, and, and maybe a little biased, but um, I don't well, know. He had a big, and he had a big following too, so I mean I, I know that that was you know that was important, <laughs> but that's great to be like I mean I know nothing about you know I, my relationship with Plasmatics was what I saw of them on TV. A few times I saw them on TV, a few times I saw them live, and then, uh, you know, my relationship with them while I was recording the album, and, uh, you know, following their career through the through the 80s as, as they went <clears throat> through changes in their band, and then when she basically became almost like a solo artist, 
Wendy O. Williams on her own became the you know the metal pre, uh, priestess. So uh, yeah, I, well that's great that they liked her, and I mean they certainly were anti-establishment, but that's for sure. Hey, so so I want to read a quote, um, and I, I think that you wrote this. So it's it's from a song. There was never any goodness in the days of their lives. Was a day-to-day -day battle to live and survive. So, so that song that you sent me, The Legend of Viper Company, so you, right. you mentioned that, that you wrote that. So I wanted to learn, we, Joe and I were talking about it, we kind of like to learn about what that is about, what that inspiration I wrote, is. But. I wrote the song after I saw uh, one of the, uh, the news shows on TV. Uh, it, was, it was well over 10 years ago. And they were talking about um, Viper Company in Afghanistan. And all I was trying to point out is that they were going through hell. That's what that that's what that was, that's what that meant, and uh, there's no goodness in the days of their lives because they were, you know, fighting to survive, and they were, they were under uh, incredible odds, and um, and it was a tribute to them and to all service people, and I want to thank you guys for your service too. Like I, uh, uh, I mean, military and and uh, law enforcement is very very uh, heavy in my family. Uh, especially on my father's side of the family, well, both sides of my family. And uh, it was a big deal growing up, and um, if I would have been called upon uh, to, to serve and have the work out, I would have happily done that. And I understand, uh, or maybe sometimes I don't understand, the real sacrifice that, um, uh, that people make. But when I heard this story, and, uh, you know, plus, I mean, my, my affection and, and, you know, uh, the Killer album with Kachina, my, that was my pet snake on the cover of, of the Killer album. Um, I had uh, I had always, and, and, and for the Killsmith 2 album, <clears throat> uh, they, you know, there's always, uh, there's two Cobras on the, on, the, on the cover of that album. And there's, I always have uh, a, 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 the Vipers have always impacted. Snakes, and since I, since I was a since I was a small kid, and it's like anything else, anything that you're afraid of. I mean, my grandma, I mean, my my grandmother, my grandfather, my my uh, mother's side were very religious people, and my grandmother was religious right down to the fact of Satan and snakes and the Garden of Eden and everything. And when she found a snake, even a garter snake in her garden, she had a hope she would chop it up into like 20 pieces. And, and uh, so she kind of instilled a fear of snakes in me at an early age. And over time, I broke that because I had these pets. So, uh, and that's what often happens. You know, take your biggest fear and you, uh, you conquer it. And that's what I did. And, and now I'm very inspired and work. So when I heard the story about Bible Club, I said, that is a perfect segue into a song that I could make as a tribute for, for what these uh, men in uniform in Afghanistan and women uh, in Afghanistan are, are, are going through, even though I've never experienced myself. But I, I was inspired to write it, inspired to uh, uh, put the song out, and I like to uh, put it on my Facebook page every Memorial Day. And uh, I, uh, I, I, I was very happy with the outcome of the song. And it was also, I did it in sort of a rap uh, fashion, um, but I'm not a rapper at all, but I, uh, but I, but I uh, really like it, I've always had a lot of compliments on it, and uh, 
it's, uh, you know, I, I do like to write tributes uh, occasionally, and I think that's, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's really heavy. It's, it's um, you know, it can really draw you in, right? Because it's got that kind of dark kind of element. So, um, I mean, and not, and not to be intentionally dark, it's just that the subject matter really draws you in. Um, yeah, well, that was, I mean, when I wrote the story, uh, it drew me in big time. Uh, when I w was watching the news, I don't know, 60 Minutes, one of those shows, and they were talking about, I go, Viper Company, I said, and, and in the Valley of Death, I, I mean, it, it, that's just, I have to do more research, and the, the deeper I got into it, I said, man, these guys went through hell, and, uh, <clears throat> and it was a, it was a, was a, was a tough time. So uh, that was, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of put an underline to the story that I, that I had read about and watched on TV and, uh, you know, just wanted to bring it to the attention to people that they wanted to they heard the song and do more research on it, you know, and again, understand the sacrifice these, these guys have made. So what are you guys, uh, what are you working on now, Neil? I, I know, uh, you know, we're all stuck in this in this COVID uh, pandemic quarantine, and people are like laying low. What uh, what are you able to do during the uh, quarantine, and what what inspires you, and what projects do you have going now? Well, I've been uh, buying groceries and playing a lot of golf because in Arizona you can still play golf. But other than that, uh, I have two music projects. One I'm just finishing up, which is actually uh, some some uh, songs that I recorded back in the uh, uh, the same time we're talking about, the late 80s and early 90s, the songs written between 1985 um, uh, and 1995, and I, and, but they're more of a pop thing, and I was inspired by Phil Collins and another drummer, songwriter, singer, <clears throat> and, uh, but I wanted to do my own version. Instead of the heavier rock like I normally did, I wanted something not, not essentially danceable, but it is very danceable, um, and a little more pop feeling. Uh, these are, and it's about romance, you know, falling in love, falling out of love, and something I normally, uh, you know, wouldn't write about with my uh, uh, other music. But it was, and I kind of put them on the shelf, and I was going through my archives uh, a couple of years ago, and I started listening to them, and I said, you know, this is almost like a time capsule of what was happening musically uh, in those days. And uh, so I had, because um, I, um, three of the songs I actually did in the studio with live drums, but I made them sound uh, more synthesized. And um, then I, uh, in, in, in my studio in Connecticut, I wrote um, eight more songs uh, and, and I was programming the drums. I didn't play live drums. And <clears throat> going back to the first three songs that I did, uh, there was a song called Secret Eyes that I did live and that I did in the studio. And at the time, there was a, a new company called Grudge Records. These were some of the CBS executives that were, were fired when they had the big, uh, uh, you know, downturn in the music industry in the late 80s. And they were fired from CBS instead of their own company. It was called Grudge. And they signed us. And, and uh, Dennis Dunaway and myself, Joe Bouchard from Oyster Call. Charlie Hume from uh, Ted Nugent's uh, band, um, uh, uh, who was a great, great singer and, and a guitar player, but he sang in this band. He was the lead singer in Dead Ringer. And then a good friend of mine, Triple J, J. Jesse Johnson, 
uh, who's a great guitar player out of the New England area, uh, did the guitar work. And we had it, we, we, we penned a deal with uh, Grudge Records. We released the, um, the, an album called Electrocution of the Heart. Secret Eyes was the single off the album. Charlie did a great uh, job of singing the song. He sang the whole album. He's an amazing singer. And uh, so, uh, but it was, a, it was a short-lived record company, short-lived band, and uh, I kept writing in that style through the through the 90s. And uh, I was programming my own drums. I was playing the the, the, um, uh, the synthesizer, the keyboards, and <clears throat> putting a lot of bottom on it there, and uh, and writing these tunes. And then uh, Jay Johnson um, would come in and, and he would put guitar work on it. So the, these were just lying around. <clears throat> and about two years ago, I discovered them, and I said, you know, the, uh, the, although these are were demos at the time, I think I could polish these up a little bit, which is what I've done, and uh, I have 11 songs, and um, very romantic, uh, you know, probably not politically correct by today's standards, but I really don't give a shit, because it is a time capsule. It was pulled from, you know, the, the, that era uh, when it didn't have to be politically correct, uh, and uh, it's just about relationships, and there's nothing X-rated in it or anything like that, but it's just... Um, uh, a little, about like I said, a little more pop. And so I put it together, and the CDs are being manufactured now, and I'm going for a summer release, hopefully I have copies by June 1st of uh, 2020 this year. And, uh, you know, if anybody's interested in, in the, the music that I was doing back then, that was when I was right in the middle of my real estate career, so I wasn't really doing anything musically. So I was just concentrating on writing some, songs in a new direction that I'd never tried before. It's, again, it's called Pop 8595 with 11 uh, unreleased songs. Oh, nice. And is that, is that album cover, uh, I saw that photo, is that Diamond Head in the background? Is that in Hawaii? Yeah, that's, um, the, the gal on that, uh, she's a Brazilian model, actress, and uh, I, I had a couple of different ideas for the album covers. But I thought because it was really more of a you know a romance pop album that that would be uh, that would be more like and because it's going to be a summer album uh, I, I have uh, I, I have pictures of her on the cover and on the uh, on the back cover and uh, yeah so it's I mean that's all but it's all all part of uh, of the whole spirit of of the uh, of the music uh, of the CD. Hey, yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great photo. Go ahead, Steve. Sorry. Yeah. So so you're doing um so you're out in Arizona. You're doing some stuff with Alice. Um, you said you were working on a project with him. Yeah, we um actually uh there's uh three new songs that I've I've played on uh, a couple of years ago. I recorded a track um with Mike Mike Bruce is just re releasing our guitar player. And uh, it's called Born Screamer, and he just released it um, last week, the, uh, the mid part of uh, of May here, 2020. And uh, I, I played drums on that. Um, and then Alice has an upcoming album that we will be released sometime this year, uh, 2020. Bob Ezrin produced it. And when we came out here. Um, in early December 2019, we played for Alice's wonderful charity, uh, the Solid Rock Foundation, his annual Christmas pudding, 
We had uh, Johnny Depp uh, play guitar and uh, John Bonham, uh, Joe Bonamassa play guitar uh, as well. And we did um, five of our hit songs in the uh, in the evening, and that was great. But during that time period, uh, Bob was Bob Ezra was out here. We went to the studio and we recorded uh, two two brand new songs, and one of them Dennis wrote, and one of them I wrote. Uh, and um, and then uh, Bob and Alice collaborated on the <clears throat> on the songs. Alice always comes in and rewrites the lyrics, does great lyrics on the songs, and Bob has some great ideas too, and lyrics. So uh, those will be those two songs will be on Alice's new album. So there will be two new uh, original Alice Cooper band songs um, on on Alice's next album. I'm not sure when it's going to be released, and I have not heard uh, of a title for the album yet. You think there's um, you think there's a likelihood or an opportunity to do anything live with uh, as a as a group? Yeah, I, I you know we do special things like for the um, uh, the Christmas pudding. Uh, we've done uh, you know we in 2017 we went over to the UK and we uh, we, we played uh, on tour with him five nights uh, that ended his UK tour uh, through England and, um, and and ended that we played about a half hour with a, one of our hit songs. At the end of his show. Um, other than that, I, I, you know, you never know. We never knew that was going to happen. So it's one of those things. If it seems to be the right thing, we'll do it. It's like it's like these recordings. I'm always thankful and I'm happy that the fans, um, you know, get an opportunity. A lot of the fans that have seen us before and the new fans that never saw us. Mm -hmm. And I think that yep. you know, seeing Dennis Dunaway, Mike Bruce, myself, and Alice on stage together. Um, is always a treat for our fans and uh, anybody that's been a true Alice Cooper fan over the years. Hey, so um, so so as we kind of wrap, because um, we're you've given us so much of your time, which by the way we really appreciate. Um, but um, you want to tell us some things that you'd like to um, that you hope to get out there, and 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 maybe we can help be a vehicle to our veteran and military audience. Well, I think that um, you know I always love uh, on my. Um, Neil Smith rocks. Don't forget, my name is spelled N-E-A-L-S-M-I-T-H. I don't have an I in there. There's an A. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm not going to joke around and say I spell it correctly because I know uh, it, it's spelled two different ways. Even the Rock Roll Hall of Fame freaking misspelled my name, but that's another story. But um, at any rate, neilsmithrocks.com, uh, my face on Facebook, and I will have the tribute um, Legend of Viper Company uh, out there for Memorial Day coming up. And uh, the new album, Pop 8595, will be available on uh, my my website is neilsmithrocks.com and, uh, and CD Baby um, in the, you know, within a couple of weeks. So those are my biggest projects I am working on. I also have a solo project, Killsmith, but I've, and that's the Legend of Viper Company is actually a Killsmith song of Killsmith 2, my second Killsmith album. And uh, I'm working on a, um, uh, a new album. Not sure if it's going to be Neil Smith solo or Neil Smith Killsmith. But I have the songs written except for two that I'm currently writing, and I will record them when I get back to Connecticut. And that's going to be called um, uh, Neil Smith or Killsmith Goes West. And it will be a little bit more in a Western vein. I like to experiment with different ideas. Uh, I write songs and just sort of let them write themselves. And uh, and then I uh, I decide the direction 
of the lyrics, and uh, it, it's a little bit difficult for me to try, but um, there's some great musicians on there as well, great guitar players. I always like to surround myself with, uh, with great players. So uh, that is a, a future project for, for me as well. Um, and other than that, uh, just trying to survive, wash my hands, uh, stay safe, stay away from sick people. I advise everybody out there to do it. I know some, uh, some, some states and some cities are starting to slowly open. I'm, uh, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, think this is, I take this very seriously. Um, I don't know what's going on with this virus, but I know that a lot of people are uh, getting sick and a lot of people uh, are, get, are, are, are not making it through this and passing away. And I, I uh, take anything seriously, even the common flu that uh, you know, takes people's lives. So um, everybody just be safe out there, do what you think is best, and hopefully we all uh, you know, get through this. And I don't think everything will ever be back to normal, but... Um, Humans are really good at uh, adjusting, and we just go on and enjoy music. That's one thing yeah. we can always enjoy, no matter what. And uh, I'm 100 behind that. So, um, so that's really a good way to kind of to put a capper on it. Um, I, I will, I will tell you that 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 when things do settle down, the next time that Joe and I go and uh, on the road and do a, a trip, we usually find a way to play some golf. So uh, maybe yeah. we'll be in the same city or something where we can, um, you know, we can. We can knock some balls around. Hey, that'd be awesome. I, 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 like I said, I, I should be back in Connecticut right now, but I ain't getting on a plane yeah. uh, until I know it's safe to fly. And secondly, uh, the golf courses have stayed open in Arizona. It's a little warm now, but when it gets down into the 80s, yeah. actually have a tea time coming up because it's not supposed to get over 85 degrees. It's already been in the triple digits here. Uh -huh. And I don't play when it gets that hot. So, um, uh, it, it, it's a lot, a lot of beautiful courses, a lot of fun, and it, uh, it, it could be worse. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, we, uh, we look forward to maybe getting a little golf. If you get out to Hawaii, I'd love to get you on the golf courses out here. And, uh, I've, loved the, I've seen the courses in Hawaii. They look, they look gorgeous. I've been there. Uh, I never played golf when I was there, but I was there back in the, uh, back in the 70s. It's been a long time, but, but I loved it. And since I was a huge surf fan in the uh, 60s that's my high school band the laser beats from camelback high school played all surf music and uh, uh hopefully in some of my style once in a while you, yeah. you, you pick that up but i was a huge wipeout fan and still have recordings somewhere from the original uh band i was in uh, my high school rock band playing wipeout so uh, huge uh north shore waimea bay fan for for hawaii perfect that's where i live <laughs> You kidding? No, I'm I'm literally uh, right up the hill from uh, Waimea Bay. I'm I'm on the north shore of Oahu. I'm still looking for a T-shirt for Waimea Bay. I'm looking. I scan the. Uh, that would be the one surf T-shirt I'd love to have, but I'm, I'll I'll find one. I, I know they're available once in a while, but that's awesome, man. I you know if you ever get a picture of it, uh, I'd love to see a picture. You can you can forward it to me. I'll I'll post it. I I, love, I mean that. That's, uh, that was so huge when I was a kid going to, going to school here in, in Arizona. I, uh, I was a, uh, an Arizona surfer. Well, I'm sure Joe can, I'm sure Joe can find a, an appropriate um, Waimea Bay uh, t-shirt for you. And yeah, we can, we'll, we'll get something special. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if you find one, I'll be happy to pay for it. Extra, 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 double extra large would be great. But uh, no, that's cool, man. I can't believe that, that you're that close to Waimea Bay. That's awesome. 
Yeah, it, yeah, it's a it's fantastic out here in Hawaii. This is a great place to be quarantined. I've been surfing. They shut that. They did shut the golf courses down in Hawaii for a little while. Yeah, Turtle Bay is actually. Where I have two. Chef Gordon, our manager, of course, lives in, in Maui, um, so he, he's he's out there, uh, and uh, so I yeah I know I know that and I also have some friends that uh, where I live in Connecticut they spend the winters in, in Maui and they they said the same thing that the, the courses were closed. Are they back open again now, John? Some some of the courses have reopened, uh, so people are able to get out again. It's nice. Yeah, but but here in Florida, we've been I've been golfing a couple times a week since this all started. I mean, nothing has changed. The only thing that changed is they changed, uh, you know, they put a foamy or something in the cup so that you can't pull the pin out. But um, but yeah. you know, but it's at least you were able to do something, right? Yeah, that's the same thing here. They they. Uh... For a while, they had one person per cart. Now it's back to two people per cart, and they scrub down the carts. Uh, they don't. You can't use the ball washers; they're not there, and and you can't take the flags out. So anything, and they also uh, they they took the rakes away from the right. uh, from the sand traps. Right. So anything that you touch is no longer on the uh, on the golf courses, right. which is which is all fine with me. Uh, I never go in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you go in, then you never get out. Just kind of drop a ball and take the stroke. <laughs> it's, it's happened occasionally, yes. I use the hand, the hand wedge. <laughs> well, well, I think on that note, um, uh, we, I, I think we'll, that we'll wrap this. And we do want to thank you for take, giving us the time. We really do appreciate yeah, it. And again, thank you for your service and, and your time. I appreciate it. And uh, hit them straight, hit them far. <laughs> you too. Take it easy. Be careful. All right, guys. Okay, aloha. Take care. Okay. What a drag.